This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by our friends at WCScreens.com, the banner sponsor for the entire 2023 season. If you have needs with screen printing, embroidery, or more, please check out our pals at West Coast Screen Printing and Embroidery at WCScreens.com. They have nationwide shipping and wholesale pricing. Not only are they big supporters of this podcast, but like you, they are also diehard fans of the Fighting Irish. So where are they at? WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Notre Dame often gets lumped in with the Ivy League schools due to its academic rigor, reputation, and selectivity. But what about on the football field? There was a time when the Ivy League schools practically ran the college gridiron scene. But have you ever wondered if the lads of Notre Dame ever bumped with the brains of the Ivy League? Well, with over 1,300 games under their belt as a program, Let's dig into the few times Notre Dame has squared off against a school belonging to the Ivy League. So buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to offering number 86 in show history. Happy to have you join me as always, and doubly happy to share that I have a pretty unique offering today. I'm not sure if it has been widely covered anywhere, but I'm going to take a shot at it, and that is Notre Dame football's history with the Ivy League. Now, forgive me, I've been suffering from seasonal allergies the last couple weeks, so my voice isn't 100% here, but rest assured I am, and uh, ready to give this one a good solid take, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before jumping in, I have something to share here quickly, and that is I took my family to the home opener in early September against Tennessee State. We, of course, had an awesome time, and by the way, it was great to watch an Irish win, of course. But at some point early in the game, they flashed a couple slides with the names of Notre Dame football players who had passed in the previous year. And the one that really caught my eye was class of 1956 alum Wayne Edmonds, who died on September 17th, 2022. Actually, about a year ago to the day that uh, I am writing this. But it was back in February of 2021 that this show, in launching a Gridiron Groundbreakers of the Fighting Irish miniseries, did an entire episode about Wayne. I believe it was episode number 39. Wayne was the first black football letter winner in Notre Dame history. Needless to say, I was a bit sheepish for somehow missing the news and having the opportunity to properly commemorate Mr. Edmonds then, but I'll give it a take now. Edmonds was born in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania in 1933. 
Cannonsburg is really just a stone's throw from Van Voorhees, which is where Myron Patios is from, who we recently talked about as a standout Irish linebacker and the founder of the famous Linebacker Lounge. So we are talking Western Pennsylvania football. But at any rate, Cannonsburg, like Van Voorhees, they were both coal towns and both in the shadow of Pittsburgh. In fact, as far as coal towns are concerned, Wayne's father, Denzel, was a coal miner himself. But one of Wayne's heroes in the football-crazed area of western Pennsylvania was Notre Dame end and eventual Heisman Trophy winner, Leon Hart, also from the Pittsburgh area. Hurdle Creek, I believe. But when Wayne ended up at Notre Dame as a two-way lineman in the fall of 1952, he was very proud to have been issued Hart's jersey number, number 82. Though he wanted to attend the school and play for the legendary coach Frank Leahy, it was actually Wayne's mother who had the most trepidation. The family were devout Baptists, and she was nervous that her son would convert to Catholicism, which he did not do during his time in South Bend. But here is an excerpt from an article he wrote in 2021 for FightingIrish.com. Quote, I went to Notre Dame as an end, but was moved to tackle in my sophomore year. I achieved monogram status three years, including with the 1953 National Championship team. In 1953, Notre Dame's season opener was at Oklahoma. No hotel could be found in Norman that would accommodate the entire team, black players and white. So we stayed at a hotel an hour or so outside the university town. On game day, as the team buses drove to the stadium, Coach Leahy used that fact to whip up the players' enthusiasm to beat Oklahoma, which we did by a score of 28-21. to Still later in the 1953 season, Notre Dame was to play Georgia Tech, which had a 31-game winning streak and the number one ranking at the time. It was to be a home game for Georgia Tech, but Tech said Notre Dame couldn't bring me or Dick Washington onto the field in Atlanta. Our lady stood strong. If Georgia Tech wanted to play Notre Dame, Frank Leahy said, we would have to come up to South Bend and play the entire Notre Dame team. They came, and Notre Dame won. 2714 end quote so in 1955 using the tragic murder of Emmett Till Edmonds gave a speech on campus to raise awareness of the civil rights movement and several students ultimately donated to the local chapter of the NAACP Wayne graduated in 1956 and forewent a career playing professional football for his passion of social work he obtained his master's in social work in 1959, and he became a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And he spent quite some time doing that. And he also oversaw healthcare programs for the United Mine Workers to help people like his father. He later said, quote, Notre Dame gave me an opportunity to see where I had something to give to others, end quote. Wayne Edmonds, the first black football letter winner, in Notre Dame football history, was 88 years old. So on to the topic at hand, Notre Dame and the Ivy League schools. So first, let's quickly review this conglomerate of Ivy League schools, which have mostly stayed the same since the beginning of time, for college football anyway. So you have Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, Harvard, Penn, Princeton, and Yale. And as they say, the trick isn't getting through the Ivy League, it's getting 
into the Ivy League. So we are talking about some of the most selective universities in the nation. And here are those acceptance rates. Brown, 5.4%. Columbia, 3.7%. Cornell, 8.7%. Dartmouth, 6.2%. Harvard, a 3.4% acceptance rate. Penn, a 5.7% acceptance rate. Princeton, a 4% 4 acceptance rate. And Yale, at 4.6%. So there's that. And I've worked in the admissions office at a semi-selective college, and now I work in enrollment in the community college space. So I always have a bit of trouble fathoming these acceptance rates. But hey, moving on. What was the origin of this fairly distinct episode? Well, when I was looking at the 1923 team and their roster and results, I couldn't help but notice that their slate of games included, spoiler, a game against Princeton. I thought that was pretty interesting, and then I suppose at that point, then the lid came off. I began looking to see what other intersections Notre Dame shared with these Ivy League football programs. But before getting into football, I will say, in higher education, there is this running list of what is known as, quote, hidden Ivies or those highly selective schools that offer premier, exemplary even, education, but are not listed among the Ivy League schools. And Notre Dame is always on that list. But now, back to football. When college football formally, I'll say, started in 1869, it involved Rutgers and Ivy League member Princeton in the very first college football game. But the Ivy League schools absolutely dominated college football in the early decades of the sport on the campuses. Richard Goldstein, who wrote the excellent book called Ivy League Autumns, said the following in that history, quote, An 1870s Yale man named Walter Camp essentially invented college football, devising most of its major elements with the exception of instant replay, which is, of course, a bit facetious, but point taken. Goldstein continues, the eight Ivy schools, Brown, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, Harvard, Penn, Princeton, and Yale, supplied the All-Americans of football's formative years, and their alumni spread the gospel by filling coaching posts throughout America, end quote. So all of this was set in motion, the impact of the Ivies in college football, even well before Notre Dame began playing the sport formally in 1887. Author Frank P. Maggio said in his book, Notre Dame and the Game That Changed College Football, that, quote, during these first years of college football, the students at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were the leaders, at least at the university level, in developing the rules of the game. He quotes historian Mark E. Bernstein, who shared that, quote, the Ivy League created an American football that almost every facet of the game bears their imprint, end quote. And so just to really hammer this one home, here you go. Most national championships, claimed or unclaimed, by school for college football. Harvard checks in at number eight, and this is still today, in 2023. Harvard checks in at number eight with eight. Princeton is number three with 15. And believe it or not, the school that has won the most college football national championships is Yale with 18. So where does Notre Dame fit in with these Ivies? Okay, well, albeit a bit indirectly, do you know who Notre Dame's first victory as a football program came against? 
Well, the answer will take you to December 6, 1888. Notre Dame's first victory on the gridiron was against the Harvard School of Chicago in a 20-0 bout in South Bend. This was after a couple losses to the University of Michigan. But sure, the Harvard School of Chicago was a prep school, just another name for a high school, but this school was founded in Chicago to prepare kids to go to, you guessed it, Harvard, or any other, quote, elite Eastern schools. According to the school's website even today, it says, Chicago Harvard School, which was also known as the Harvard School, was formed in 1865 by Edward S. Waters, a Harvard University graduate. Waters' plan was to have a school that would prepare boys for college and university work at Harvard and other prestigious Eastern schools. So no, while not exactly Harvard proper by any stretch of the imagination, it is impossible to ignore that the first victory in Notre Dame football history was against a prep school explicitly founded to ready students for schools like Harvard, so much so that the school itself was named for the mothership, so to speak. And that was in 1888. Now, moving forward, we're going to go with a bit of a chronology here. For the rest of the 19th century, Notre Dame football just really kind of existed. There's plenty of ebbs and flows, while the Ivy League influence continued to spread across the country. Now, between 1896 through 1898, Notre Dame coach Frankie Herring was at the reins, and he did some really awesome things with the program, as covered in episode 61 and I guess various others of this show. But Notre Dame really did fight for relevancy for the first decade of the 20th century as well. Coach and fullback Lewis Salmon damn near single-handedly put Notre Dame on the map between 1900 and 1903. But that momentum really did kind of dissipate until 1909 when the Irish finally defeated the, quote, Western powerhouse of Michigan. But the Irish were never scheduled to play one of the mighty Ivy League schools. Now, some would surmise, myself among them, that the WASP, or white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Ivy League schools didn't have much interest in playing the academically nondescript, immigrant-laden Notre Dame. And I'm going to go out of order here to drill down on this point, because it is an important one to kind of discuss. But ahead of the 1920 season, with Notre Dame football beginning to really fully establish, and now head coach Knut Rockne at the helm, he wrote Harvard in an attempt to schedule a game for that season. However, Harvard rebuffed and declined his overtures, saying that it would be, quote, inadvisable for the teams to meet. So one can imagine Rock's frustration. If you know much about Rock, he would get frustrated about these kinds of things, and he would get more frustrated when he soon caught wind that Harvard had actually then scheduled Valparaiso University from Valparaiso, Indiana, for a game. Valpo was effectively irrelevant in the college football landscape at this time. Think of it as like the equivalent of a Division III school playing a Division I school. And this incensed Rock as to why his team was turned down, but the neighboring tiny football school was scheduled. He surmised, I'm sure, that it was because Valparaiso was not a Catholic school. And so it would seem very strongly that an anti-Catholic bias was at play. But Rock did what he could do. And that was, uh, he also scheduled Valpo for the 1920 season. If only to beat them by more than Harvard did. 
which, by the way, Harvard beat Valpo 21-0. to zero. A couple weeks later, Rockney's Ramblers beat them 28-3. to three. So mission accomplished. Oh, and just for the sake of sharing, the Gipper himself, George Gipp, scored two touchdowns and kicked three extra points in the game against Valpo. But, to be fair also, Notre Dame just really wouldn't have crossed the larger college football radar at this time. If they were to play an Ivy League school, they'd certainly have to travel to them, and often the school couldn't afford that either. But that had changed in the fall of 1914, so sorry, we're backing up just a little bit. But by that time, Knut Rockney and Gus Duray had redefined the forward pass for the board in a game against Army. And by that time, both men had also graduated. Rock was still on campus as an assistant coach under then-head coach Jess Harper. Pony also taught chemistry, by the way. But however, 1914 was a banner year. Perhaps on the heels of the great Notre Dame upset over Army the season before, the aforementioned win in which Rock and Gus DeRay steamrolled the uh, Army squad with the forward pass, the mighty Yale was scheduled for Notre Dame in the Irish's first test against a bona fide Ivy League school. So unfortunately, though, this one didn't go well. Traveling to New Haven, Connecticut, Harper's Notre Dame squad was beaten 28-0. Though the scoreboard was lopsided, the newspaper, the Chicago Herald, did give some credit to Notre Dame for their pluckiness and spirit when it was shared that, quote, in the last period of play, when all seemed lost save honor, the Notre Dame play was again opened up and the ball carried steadily down the field to within five yards of the Yale goal. All the breaks of the game went to Yale. In spite of this, the gold and blue lived up to their traditions and met the bulldog at his own fighting game. Never once did Notre Dame quit struggling against the inevitable. End quote. So there was that. Someone wrote a poem also. <laughs> One of the students wrote a poem after the game uh, to the school newspaper, and it went something like this. Cheer up, boys. There will be other Yale games. Oh, east is east and west is west. But whenever we meet again, Let's hope we'll strew old Eli's plain with dead and dying men. The gods be good to Eli's sons on some not distant date when Notre Dame goes back to Yale to kill that 28, end quote. So the 28 was, of course, in reference to the score. And uh, other than that, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. But that first little phrase that says, cheer up, boys, there will be other Yale games. Uh, spoiler alert, there will be no more Yale games. Uh, anyways, they've, uh, they've never squared off against Yale since 1914, and they also haven't squared off against Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, or Brown, for that matter. Though being snubbed by Harvard, Coach Rockney did get Princeton on the schedule in 1923, as what was mentioned earlier, and in 1924. Those showdowns produced a pair of wins, a 25-2 and 12-0 win, respectively. So in 1930, Rock's final season at Notre Dame, they did play the University of Pennsylvania, better known simply as Penn. But in route to a national championship that season, Rockney's Irish defeated the Quakers by a 60-20 tally. The next year, 1931, 
The first season without Rockney roaming the sidelines as either a player or a coach for about two decades after his tragic plane crash, the Irish played the Quakers again. With now head coach Hunk Anderson at the helm, they again made light work of the Quakers in a 49-0 victory. They'd play Penn again, but let's hop to World War II era ball here for a second. In 1944 and 1945, the Irish picked up a two-game home-away series against Dartmouth. By the way, this was in that scene where head coach Frank Leahy was off-serving in the armed forces for the global conflict. So you had Ed McKeever and Huey DeVore as head coach in 1944 and 1945, respectively. But anyways, the Irish played on the road in 1944 and beat Dartmouth 64-0. However, what makes this game distinct is the fact that it was played at, drumroll, Fenway Park in Boston. Fenway is, of, of course, one of the oldest of all the Major League Baseball stadiums. It was built in 1912, and it was their first appearance at Fenway. And guess what? It wouldn't happen again for another 71 years when they played Boston College there as part of the Shamrock Series. So how about that? That was in 2015. Only speaking for myself here, I did not remember that anecdote crossing my purview in 2015, that it had been over seven decades since the Irish had played at Fenway Park. Perhaps I shouldn't be so surprised. It's only become in vogue somewhat recently for football teams to play special games in baseball stadiums. But anyways, 1945, this is again against Dartmouth, produced a 34-0 win. So Dartmouth failed to score in either game, and the total cumulative score was 98-0. to So they made pretty light work of Dartmouth in kind of the World War II era. So then back to Penn, and I didn't realize that Notre Dame actually played Penn four straight seasons between 1952 and 1955. But surprisingly, the teams tied their initial 1952 bout by a 7-7 score. Penn actually had a really good season that year. But this also happened to be the opening game of the season. And some of those 1950 years were pretty lean for Notre Dame, regardless of who was coaching as Frank Leahy was still in charge of the program that season. 1953, however, was not a lean year. The Irish defeated Penn 28-20, and their final record was 9-0-1, and they were this close to another national championship. They finished runner-up in the AP and coaches' polls to Maryland, though they did stake a claim at the national championship at other polls. However, if not for a little bit of a consolation, prize 1953 was the year John Lujak was named a Heisman Trophy winner that year. The next two years, which were the final instances of Notre Dame playing an Ivy League school, netted them two more wins against Penn, 42-7 and 46-14 in 1954 and 1955, respectively. Something I found interesting about this four-game series against Penn is that they were all played and in Philadelphia at Franklin Field. So I never could figure out why that was. But if you know, uh, feel free to share it with me. Onward to Victory Podcast at gmail.com. So here you go. Here's the rundown. 
5-0-1 against Penn, 2-0 against Dartmouth, 2-0 against Princeton, and 0-1 against Yale for an aggregate record of 9-1-1 against the Ivy League Conference in football. And I imagine Yale is one of those very few schools that can claim they are undefeated against Notre Dame. So go ahead and keep that one and tuck it in your back pocket. You know, just in case it comes up at Trivia Night at your local watering hole. And I'll be right back with Show Wrap. I hope you enjoyed that summation of Notre Dame's history with those Ivy League schools. Again, I thought it was an interesting comparison, too, because a lot of the narrative around Notre Dame, at least I got to say pre-NIL, is that Notre Dame couldn't compete for so many guys because of the academic rigor of the school and the institution and the acceptance rate and all this and that. And I think what we're seeing now is the NIL has honestly maybe leveled the playing field a bit for Notre Dame. Flash, you got to give major props and major kudos to uh, Coach Marcus Freeman and his staff for just being able to compete for some of these guys that I don't think we would have been in the running for in the previous years. But anyways, so I thought that was really interesting, uh, kind of a cross-section between Notre Dame and those Ivy Leagues that, uh, again, they have a very similar reputation and sterling academic prestige now. But, you know, back when these schools were playing, Notre Dame was still very much a burgeoning academic school, and yet they just had a really, really lucky football team, whereas the Ivies would have been uh, kind of in that spot where their academics were, of course, excellent. And by the time they got around to start playing Notre Dame, at least in uh, large part, you know, the shine had been taken off the football programs a little bit. But it's an interesting history nonetheless. And Something that, uh, as I was thinking about, I forgot to mention is that uh, if you haven't already had an opportunity to listen to the previous episode, it was episode number 85, which was the second installment of the Iconic Sites of Notre Dame series. Now, it was about the Presbytery, so I hope you had a chance to listen to it. It has a very, very interesting history, and it's one of those sites that maybe isn't as popular. However, it is so critically important to the history of Notre Dame and to the culture of Notre Dame and the ethos of Notre Dame, which was present then and that we still enjoy today. So make sure if you haven't already, go back, listen to episode 85, a part two of the iconic sites of Notre Dame series. It was about the Presbytery. It ties in heavily with Notre Dame's founder, Father Edward Soren. But again, give it a listen. If you want to drop the show an email, or a Facebook message. Well, the Facebook page is easy enough to find. But again, I mentioned the email earlier. If you have something that you'd like to send, I try to read everything on episodes of the show. The email address is onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you really, really enjoyed this episode, uh, I have to give some major roses to the Consensus All Americans. And they are, of course, those very special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show. And uh, I wouldn't be here if not for them, honestly. And they include Michael Finan, 
of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Mike Johnson of Oak Park, Illinois. So thank you all. And if you would like to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onward to victory or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast. If you aren't in a position to give in this manner, no worries. Sincerely, please like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell any of your friends and family about the show. All of those things continue to assure that the show will grow in its fourth year. I'd like to also give a quick shout out to Joseph Rakish, whose song Canute Rockney serves as the show's theme song. Head over to his page on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, uh, YouTube, wherever you listen to music. He's got a page there. He actually just put out an album this year, this summer. So the brand new music from Joseph Rakish. So make sure you go check him out too. And I guess it goes without saying, it's September 20th now, as I'm recording this, the Irish have a really big game this weekend. So hopefully the boys kind of show out a little bit and show those Ohio State Buckeyes what Notre Dame football is all about, or at least what Notre Dame football is all about here in 2023. Best of luck, and I hope everyone enjoys it. And again, thanks for kind of bearing with me. I don't feel like my voice sounds very good today, and it hasn't sounded very good for the last couple weeks, honestly. But we soldier on. So thanks for, again, bearing with me. And with that, I'd better sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. As always, go Irish.